Hi everyone, my name's Steve Tudor and welcome to the Friday Show. It's the show that suspects that Stephen Gerrard will always have the hair of an 11-year-old bully. On today's... <laughs> <laughs> he really does, doesn't he? <laughs> I've never thought about that for a second and now I cannot, I cannot that. <laughs> he really does. On today's pod, we're, we're taking advantage of the international break to press rewind on the 2020-21 season, assessing who's having a blind debt and who are groping their way through the dark. We'll begin with Manchester City, of course, before opening up to the rest of the Premier League. We'll also be answering some Twitter queries along the way. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined today by two Friday favourites. It's Asan and Howard. Sorry, Asan and Howard. <laughs> oh, oh, baby no, brain. brain. Baby oh, brain. brain. Yeah, yeah. Oh. To, to, to be fair, though, Steve, I'm not a regular on a Friday. So Chris, I'll, I'm so sorry. I'll, I'll, I will forgive you on this occasion. I, I, I suspect I've used that intro before, Friday favourites, and gone into Howard. So, <laughs> yeah. Hey, I, Chris. Hey, Chris. Yes, man. I, I'm, I'm interviewing for new Friday show host. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's good, yeah. If you just, just contact my agent, it should be in search. No to, to, to explain, my baby had her injections yesterday, crying all night, no oh, sleep. Yeah, baby oh brain, baby it's brain. Hard. She's fine, though. It's, no. it's heartbreaking, isn't it? Oh, God, yeah. yeah. But, uh, sorry, Ace and, and Chris, and I, hey. I should start with you, Chris. I'm so sorry. How, how are you, sir? I'm all right, yeah, as I was saying before, uh, still carrying this cold, which, as Ace said, half the planet seems to be suffering yeah. for the minute. But uh, yeah, I'm okay. It's been it's been a long week work wise, but it's all good. Good. I've, do you have a good weekend ahead? Uh, yeah, I've got a couple of ref games. I'm being assessed on Saturday. Oh, really? Yeah, kind of. And, and so I've not been able to keep fit this week, so I should be fine. But assessments just add a, it, it, there's a promotion kind of a scale with with referee. So I'm going promotion again. Does that mean that someone basically is just watching you for, throughout the whole game and yeah, marking yeah, you down? So, yeah. Yeah, so I'm doing I'm doing a Lincolnshire league, so you get two assistants, so it does um, it does help. But yeah, they're just you've got to be you've got to be on it, and yeah, so it's uh, I should be fine. But yeah, you know, you you never no one ever likes to be sort of feel like they're being watched. But I will be mm. tomorrow afternoon. Ah, good luck, man. You'll, you'll like it. Um, hey, Sam, are you well? I am. I'm thankfully I'm bug free for the moment. Good, good, good. And do you have a good weekend ahead? Uh, yes, Claire's been away all week in in Paris, um, and she's back early tomorrow morning and friends of ours have got a new they've got a new place on the island which is like right on the on the sea like the nice. like halfway halfway up a mountain basically um so we're gonna go there tomorrow night and check that out so it'll be fun so you won't be missing city domestic football and kind of having that international break lull that many may have i've learned how to um arrange life around international breaks mm. so i tend i tend to make myself very busy in the international breaks uh and like for example claire will i'll often arrange like she'll arrange to go away while it's an international break because then it's really like you know i focus on work for for a couple of weeks and that's really what it's been like for me i do exactly the same it's it's the only way to get through it because um it can be dull otherwise if it's like estonia v georgia at two o'clock on a saturday afternoon it's like oh no no time to get busy Let's also time to look back um, at the season so far for City, a quarter of the season gone, um, Indeed. many pluses, some negatives as well, as to be said. Um, who wants to go show? Start with you, Chris. What mm-hmm. encouraged you most about City so far this season? 
I think it's the way we, we're progressing again. So under Guardiola, every season we've progressed, probably bar the nineteen twenty season when Liverpool won the title. And literally, I just think we were just taking a breather because we were, we were exhausted. Mm. But, but we've progressed, particularly in the way Guardiola plays. So last season, he completely changed the way we were playing in order for us to, to, to win that title. And I'm seeing more progression now in that... You know, with one or, with one or two blips this season, we're controlling games better than ever, and the derby is is testament to that. You know, we we didn't go hell for leather to pile on goals; we just wanted to control. So it's that constant progress because he's such a um, a progressive man, a manager pet. Um, and I think the other one and and was was I think the thing that I've really been encouraged with is is the is the development of Rodri, who I said at the start of yeah. the start of the season. It's a chance for him to. Play, to, to play a big role because Fern is largely in an ambassadorial role and Rodri has absolutely come through. So I think uh, there's, there's several other things, but I think those are the two key ones, are the, the constant progress we're making and how Rodri in that CDM position is really starting to assert himself. That's a great shout. Uh, hey, Sam, that same question to you. What's kind of pleased you the most so far? Um, I mean, so firstly, I think uh, similar to, to what Chris said, uh, we that we have the system has evolved, the style of play has evolved. Um, last season was the beginnings of it, or the beginnings or the introduction of it, and you wondered whether it would carry on this season. And a little bit as an extension of that, I think that always after you win the title, the the following season, you look for complacency and you look for performances that are inexplicably flat that you then kind of, you know, you then connect it back to the idea that, well, they won the title last season, so obviously they're, they've taken their foot off the gas. Um, so for me, I feel as though that new system being introduced last season and then being perfected at the start or beginning to be perfected at the start of this season, because I view particularly Liverpool and Ch- those those two games, Liverpool and Chelsea, because the standard of opposition that we faced in those two games, I think it really is a perfecting or, or yeah, getting close to perfecting what they were doing last season. Um, and also, you know, again, last season behind closed doors, a lot of people said City can't do that again next season. A lot of people said you won't get those performances out of City once the crowds are back. Um, and we have been better, in my opinion, than we were last season, both individually in certain areas of the pitch and collectively. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of my big, that's the big positive. And I think the other big positive for me, um, with the exception of the Palace game, is defensive solidity. Mm. I feel as though uh, another thing from last season, which was a little bit put down to behind closed doors, a little bit, you know, there was an element of, I've seen certainly not from the City camp but from outside of the city zone or the city bubble there was a lot of kind of talk of how again city were lucky they can't do the same thing again um they won't be as defensively solid they will be you know susceptible once crowds are back um and i feel as though the defensive solidity uh is what our success will be built on if we are to be successful again this season. So those are the two big things for me. It's crazy, isn't it, to think that we are kind of grounded now 
on having such a superb defence. When you think back to those first few years under Pep, mm. and now you know that, that's our that's our basis from which we build upon. It's you know that, that's our kind of go to, um, and also as you said, you know last season. It wasn't dismissed or anything, but it was played down to a certain extent because totally. pe- people were saying it's Diaz and Stones as well. They were they weren't talking about the back five and of course you know the midfield protection. It was all Diaz and Stone, which is fine, fair enough, great partnership. This season they've only played together once, and yet there's been five consecutive clean sheets near the start of the season. So yeah, absolutely with you on that. Unfortunately, with every kind of yin as a yang, um, Chris, what's what's displeased you this season about City? I think as a mild distraction, and this, well, okay, it isn't about City, it's a wider thing, but what displeases me, the wider thing, is the booing of Grealish, which is just an absolute yeah, yeah, yeah. nonsense. I think, I think what's displeased me, and this is really pedantic, because they are, by the very nature, we have those occasional games like the games against Palace. And, and maybe against Southampton. But we've had two of those games in the space of the first quarter. So, you know, it means that, that they have been more frequent than normal. We get those games where we just can't solve the puzzle. And it, and, and it's just one of those games. And what's interesting is what makes Guardiola such an exceptional coach is that he understands that, that football, the, when you play football at the highest level, it's a series of jigsaw puzzle pieces that you have to piece together and then they collapse and you've got to do it again. Because actually, contra- contrary to, to what we sometimes see when we see a lot of goals, scoring a goal in football is quite difficult because it's a series of component parts which have to click together. But Guardiola is so good at doing that. But when we get those games like we get, get against Southampton and we get against Palace in particular... I just think, why, why can't we solve those games mid-games? Because we, like, like we've said before, we know after 20 minutes, this is going to be one of those games. Why can't we solve those games? And I, I know the opponent, I know Palace were exceptional and they played their game plan perfectly. But so was Southampton. Yeah, so was yeah. Southampton. But, but I just wish that we could find a way of solving that puzzle mid-game or in the second half. And it just feels that, we, that, that we're never able to do it. And I don't know whether kind of unconsciously Guardiola kind of accepts it's going to be one of those days. And I'm being incredibly pedantic, but I just feel we've had two of those games in the first quarter. We can't afford to really have any more of those. So I just wonder at any point if, if they'll ever be able to bridge that gap, that when we're in the middle of one of those games, solve that puzzle, see if we can get through it. But hey, I'm being harsh. Well, not necessarily so. Um, a sound quarter of the way through the season, um, obviously three quarters to go. So what concerns you going into the rest of the season? I mean, you know, I don't want to upset the balance of the podcast, but I'm just incredibly optimistic Mm. about the rest of the season. And and I haven't seen, you know, I haven't seen anything in the first quarter of the season uh, that has given me real cause for concern. I mean, you know, at at the risk of upsetting some natives, uh, I don't think Grealish has been great. I'm not convinced that between now and the midpoint in the season, he's going to be, as he was in the first quarter, the go-to guy on the left-hand side of the front three, because I think that there is a different level of output when you put Foden out there. Uh, And that's something that Guardiola will, will have to solve, because I think that, you know, 
Foden's had a couple of games where he's been great in the false nine, but I think ultimately the thing is that you need to clone Foden because having Foden, Foden in the false nine is great if you've got a player like Foden in one of the wide positions. But if you don't have a player like Foden in one of the wide positions, then I think it a little bit blunts what he does as a false nine. So, you know, I think personally I'd be looking at finding a different role for Grealish and moving uh, moving Phil to the uh, left-hand side of the front three. But, you know, really beyond that, I, I've, I only have cause for optimism because I didn't think that Cancelo could be as incredible as he's been. Mm. I was talking in the summer about maybe us needing to find another number six because maybe Pep had lost a bit of faith with Rodri based on his non-selection in the Champions League final and some of the mistakes that he'd made in that Champions League run. But then his f- form and his quality in the first quarter of this season has been on another level. He has by some distance played his best Manchester City football in this first quarter. Um, the players who we like to hate on, the Sterlings, the Mahrez's of this world, they're not getting a game. So it's, you, you see what I mean? Bernardo Silva, I mean, Bernardo Silva is arguably the best centre midfield player in the league, if not in Europe right yeah. now. So. It's very difficult within the context of all of that really high-level stuff that's going on to be like, well, you know, I'm not happy about this or I'm not happy about that. It it feels to me as though we are as well-placed as we were last season to win the league. And that, you can't really ask for more than that. Does it concern you in review that we fired six blanks to date? Um, that's one concern that I see a lot on, on Twitter. Uh, in particular, in fact, one of the Twitter questions sent to us was on this very subject from Farm Dash. Do you think we can win the league or the Champions League without a striker? Um, Chris? I think if you look at all of, if you look at each of those six games, each of them has a narrative to them where they kind of explain themselves. Community Shield against Leicester, we weren't ready, we weren't fit. Spurs felt like an, an anomaly. Um, I think the Southampton and Palace ones were to do with the way the opposition approached us. And um, I guess and West Ham as well, it, you know, it was, a, again, it was a cup match and it, it didn't have our strongest 11. I think I think the PSG one was the one where I thought that's where we really could have done with taking our chances. But I don't think it's particularly... I still, I'm still not, I'm, I'm still not going to subscribe to. We need a centre forward. Mm. Um, I, I'm, I'm just, I just think that that that's a narrative that's too easy to constantly default to when we're not scoring goals. Um, but, but I don't, I don't know, like I say, it, it's, it's. I can, I can look at each of those games where we've not scored a goal and look, at, and I'm not perplexed as to why we've not scored a goal. I can explain it. If I couldn't explain it, then I'd be more concerned. So it doesn't, it, it really doesn't worry me at, uh, at all that there's been a few games where we, and because we can see we just haven't taken our chances or the opposition has not allowed us to generate those chances. Exactly. Is it? kind of quite annoying how already this season it's become somewhat of a hoary subject and um, you know obviously it's fine for City fans to talk about it it's our club but outside of a club commentators in the media and the like I mean Pep's alluded to this himself hasn't he that the first defeat he's going to be asked about not having a centre forward mm. is it something that basically could just be used against Pep throughout this season you know for any defeat or any failure to win a trophy 
I mean, you know, I, I think that, the, no, it, it, in a short, to answer it in a short fashion, no, I don't think that it will be because, uh, I mean, I don't listen to uh, or read the mainstream media very much, if at all. So the only football podcast I listen to is is the Gab Marcotti and Julian Laurent's one. And Marcotti always absolutely explodes when anybody mentions the idea that City don't have a striker because he just finds even the notion of that completely absurd with the, with the talent that City have. Mm. So, I mean, it, for me, it's not really a striker thing. I actually think one of the things that has been a little bit lost in the conversation about a pure number nine is we play slightly differently, right? And part of that playing slightly differently is accommodating Grealish. And Grealish, as direct as he can be at times, is not Sterling. And he's not Mares in how he plays. He's a different type of player. And I think that that affords us more control, but it also means that we must score the perfect goal because we're not really the risk taking of I'm beating this man. I'm beating the second man. Um, it, it's not there like the, uh, yeah, it's just not there. We don't take risks with the football. We keep the football. We, you know, it really is death by a thousand cuts. And I've seen, for example, uh, some people have written some pieces that one of the reasons that, you know, Sterling is not playing as much is because we've changed the way we play. And in the new way of playing, we need to look after the ball more. And therefore, somebody like Sterling, who maybe loses the ball, um, is or doesn't have the touch as some people feel that he doesn't have to play in a system like that. That's why he's not getting in the team. And I would just say that I think that as much as that is true, I think it's also true that when we're quote unquote firing blanks, I think some of it is systemic. It is down to the fact that you're effectively playing with one, two, three, four, five, six centre midfield players in the six attacking positions. And we did a podcast recently where me and Howard talked about the idea that there's moments where you get into the final third and there's five lads lined up on the edge of the area and you're sort of going, well, one of you will have to break into that area for us to score a goal. Mm. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, everything is, everything is very, everything is connected to everything else for me, particularly with the city side. And so the lack of goals doesn't, worry me because I like the system. Even if I'm, even if I can sound like I'm, I'm, I'm harsh on Grealish at times, what he does within that system is amazing because we retain control. I think that where it needs to go up a level, and that isn't just Grealish, I think it's Grealish, it's Phil, it's Jesus, it's whoever plays in the front three positions is the goal and assist output needs to go up. Yeah. That's it. Because the control is there. You've got, you're smothering teams and you're killing teams. And when you do what we did to Liverpool and when you do what we did to Chelsea, that shows that you can, you can operate at a level which is above everybody else in the league. We are, from a footballing perspective, the best team in the league. If you go and listen to Liverpool podcasts or Chelsea podcasts, they'll openly say it. City are the best pure footballing team in the league. So the only thing I think that we need to look at and figure out how to go up to that next level is really the output from the front three. They need more. 
Because if they get a little bit more, then the Southampton games and the Palace games, they stop happening. Ferran Torres is so important in that regard, isn't he? He's he's the one with that instinct, um, you know, to get into the box and his movement and his his anticipation. You can see it's purely innate, you know, it's just inbred. And so, yeah, a fit Ferran Torres and problem solved to a a large extent. Um, Yeah, well said, man. I agree with all of the above. Um, I was going to ask you about the standout players for you this season um, and I put it on the agenda but they are so obvious I mean Bernardo Cancelo Rodri as we've already discussed so I'm going to go instead with Chris Booth on Twitter who's asked for the unsung hero so far I'll start with you Chris oh god um, it's, it's difficult I've just looked through the squad it's, it's, it's really a ha- yeah because for those who are playing on a regular basis you know they it's okay the the the, the He's not on song in, in in city community, but I think I think generally across a footballing fraternity, Carl Walker is criminally underrated and, yeah. uh, and undervalued because I think so many of his attributes are taken for granted because he's so much more than a pace merchant. He's so much more than a muscular, very dominant fullback. His, his footballing intelligence for a fullback is exceptional, considering he's only ever played in England as well. And, and I just think, with all the discussion around the the centre, you know, the, the centre halves, with the impact that, that that Diaz had, and obviously all the conversation about the forward players, I think that that Walker, when Walker has a dip in form, he addresses it immediately. He's clearly a learner rather than a knower. He wants to learn more and more. And, and and as he's getting older, he's improving more and more. So I would say, if you're going to call it Unsung Hero, for me, it's Walker, because I just think that he is an 8 out of 10 every single game that he plays. And I feel like it's overlooked uh, in, in favour of, of the more kind of explicitly glamorous performances that we see from, say, Foden and, uh, and Bernardo. Mm, mine's on the right as well. I'm going to go for Jesus um, because I think beyond City, you know, rival fans don't really appreciate just how good he's been this season, um, particularly in the early stages. Um, is there any kind of underrated City players out there? Or if you want to kind of open up to a Premier League, um, feel free to do so. Um, no, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm going to talk about two players for different reasons. So I, I know that this will, on the face of it, sound weird, but I think Foden is a little bit of an unsung hero. And mm. the, the reason I say that is because I think objectively we get to this point in the first quarter of the season and you go, from an attacking point of view, Foden's been the best player we've got, right? Um, and I think that it's a little bit lost that he's so good that they'll just move him around. So, you know, Grealish ain't playing well, stick him on the left. Somebody on the right ain't playing well, stick him on the right. We're not got a centre forward, play him through the middle. One of the eights is injured, play him as a number eight. I think that at that age, to carry the responsibility that he's currently carrying in this Manchester City team is beyond insane for me. Because we're not, you know, if a mid-table, mid-table Premier League team are giving a 21-year-old that sort of responsibility everybody's going oh my goodness what a player to step into this city team with the quality around him and the pressure that exists on a minute by minute basis when you're in the games and for him to perform at the level that he has has been absolutely tremendous and outstanding and you know for me it's a little bit unsung because 
when people talk about players, they talk about Bernardo and they talk about Rodri and they talk about Cancelo. Yeah. But it's not, people aren't really talking about Phil in the way that they should be talking about him. Uh, so did you yeah. see, Asan, did you see the post on Twitter yesterday where they were drawing a comparison between Scholes, Gerard, Lampard at the same age, 21 and Foden? No, I've not seen it. You need, oh my God. Well, quite simply, by age 21, Scholes, Gerard and Lampard, none of them had won a trophy. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and Phil's won 10. And also Phil's figures for um, games played, for assists and goals, completely blitzes uh, blitzes them out, out the water. So I think, and it, it really testifies to to, to, to what you're saying. We, the City faithful have got used to seeing Phil slowly emerge and now he's cemented his place. But actually what he's doing as a 21-year-old is exceptional and yeah. it's absolutely out of the norm. So yeah, I think it's a really, it's a really good point that 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 you make there. Yesterday, yeah. I was um, sorry, I was writing um, a piece about how City could win the World Cup in 2026. Kind of, <laughs> you're like West, when West Ham say they won the World Cup in '66 because yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Peter's in more etc. And I was basically saying that if Foden comes through and if Palmer comes through, and I, I just went through the kids basically and said if they do develop, you know, as we expect them to then we could have a real nucleus of the England squad in 2026. Um, and to, to illustrate the point, I wanted to say what Phil Foden's done at the age of 21. And when you put it all together, Jesus, it's unbelievable. Because you forget just minor details like winning the Young BBC Sports Personality of the Year award. I mean, just even something like that, I just completely forgot about that. And I started adding them all up and it was like, this is ridiculous. He's 21, for goodness sake. Part of what has protected Phil is the fact that he plays for City, right? Because yeah. I think that at other football clubs um, who play in red, I think that hype would have been uh, would have been really off the scale. Yeah. Um, and I think that by being at City in, in the way in which Pep has managed him, I think that that's been been a little bit of a godsend for him uh, because he's man- he's al- he's been allowed to develop almost out of the spotlight, um, and that's good. And I think that it's good that even now, because for me, he is our most important player. Like I know that people will say Bernardo is our most important player. I don't think he is because I think ultimately with Bernardo, he could come out of the team and Gundo and Kev could play in those positions and it would be like it has been in the past. Yeah. Um, I think that for me, Phil has been our most important player this season and that's going under the radar. And I think that's probably a good thing for him and his development because it means that he, whether he has a high or a low, it's not picked up on. It's not amplified in the way that certain other clubs tend to generate hype around young players in such a way that everything is amplified. And we don't have that phone. I think that's, that's probably a good thing. Um, I want to just very quickly pick up on another player who has been an unsung hero for a completely different reason. So John Stones, who was basically incredible for all of last season. Yeah. And was excellent for England at the Euros lost his place at the start of this season. And he was injured, I know that, and he he had a really truncated preseason because of the fact that, because of the Euros. But at the same time, he did lose his place and he kept his head down and he kept his mouth shut and he trained hard and he 
he had just signed a new contract, but even having said that, a lot of players signing that new contract, suddenly finding themselves out of the team, could sulk, could pull a face, could leak some stories, could talk about, you know, it's very easy for those that the the narrative to be generated, particularly with England players. Stones has kept a lid on it, kept a lid on himself, and took his opportunity last weekend. And I think will probably retain his place after the international break if he doesn't get injured alongside Diaz. And I think that he deserves a lot of credit for that because there were um there were a couple of pieces in the papers in the last month or so that were kind of you know, a little bit looking at talking about, oh, John Stones was so important for England and now we can't get a game for City and what's going on. So the fact that he's come through that, been quiet, not caused any problems, and when his chance has come, he's taken it. I think it's a little bit of an unsung hero moment. Mm, well said, man. Well said. Um, I was going to ask about KDB and his kind of loss of form this season, but, I mean, we've covered it in depth on the pod. And furthermore, you know, he showed signs... Very encouraging signs at Old Trafford that he is coming back to his best. And indeed, you know, it may well be attributed to just not getting over his injuries at this point. Um, so instead, I'm going to ask something sent in by Merlin's Wand, which is, does KDB get in our best functioning midfield three? Um, so I'll go to you first, Chris. And really, you can interpret this question however you wish, whether on current form, does KDB get in our best functioning midfield three? Is De Bruyne better deployed as a false nine, perhaps? Um, so what's your kind of thoughts as to where best to use Kev? And right now, is he one of our three best midfielders? So we touched upon this before the derby. About, and I remember Asan saying that, that even a kind of out-of-form KDB needs to be in our first 11. That's, that's my thinking too, I should say. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, I, and I do agree with that. Where we play him, I wouldn't want to put a, a definitive on that. Um, but I, I just... So in the derby... I don't think he was close to, 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 to being back to his best, but what he was not doing was giving the ball away, which, mm. which, which was a symptom of... And I've always said that when KDB is like that, he's one centimetre away from being in the best form because he plays passes that the people don't play. And if they're not absolutely precise, the ball will be given away. That, that, that's the risk balance that KDB plays with. And when it's working, he's the, he's the best player, one of the best players in Europe, if not across the globe. But... I would all if he's fit. I would always play him, and I think if he was, if he plays as a nine, as a false nine, we reduce the risk of us losing possession because he because he gives the ball away in in a less dangerous area. Um, it's difficult because it means someone has to go. Is you know whether Gundo doesn't play or if Ferran Torrens is fit if, if they don't play. But to go to your question, if KDB is fit. Even if he's even if he's he is dragging himself back into some sort of form that that he's normally synonymous with, I would always start him. Yeah, uh, are you saying anything to add to that? Um, no, I mean I think Chris has covered it. I guess the only thing that I would say is that that to answer the question in a literal fashion, yes, KDB gets mm. in our best functioning midfield three because. Uh, ultimately, I think he's a better footballer than Bernardo Silva and Ilkay Gundogan. So, you know, the idea that both of them, they might keep him out on form now and again, but in terms of the best, well, he's the best. Yeah, he's a difference maker. You, you always want difference yeah. makers in your team. Um, yeah. Okay, I just want to quickly kind of go through a couple of more lighthearted ones before we open it up to the Premier League. Um, our very own Harry Siddle has asked, let's hear some of your worst season predictions so far. 
Um, we talked about this off air. I admitted that I was tipping Brentford to finish in the top six. Um, they've done well, to be fair. I wouldn't say at this point that it's it's you know too ridiculous a statement. Um, Chris, were you were you tipping anyone to succeed or fail when it's gone the other way? Um, no, the only one is I did. I know we were going to touch on this later on, but I did. I did suspect that United would be up there battling for would be would, would continue to be a real threat and mm. may and Ronaldo may have may just make the lucky difference that, that in that in that I still they still have no system but with Ronaldo they would increase the number of moments of individual brilliance which could keep kind of you know t- sort of turning the cogs for them uh, so so yeah I did think that they would be far more of a threat than, than, uh, than now but I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to <laughs> Absolutely, Aisan. Uh, hey, you have you been proved wrong at this point, or, or indeed is oh, it too mate. early to say so? No, 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 no. I've I've remembered my awful, <laughs> awful, awful take from the top of the season. You ready for this? I'd sit Palace to get relegated with Vieira as manager. <laughs> <laughs> it could have gone either way. To be well, fair, that worked out well, Aisan. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it really, it really could have gone either way. To be fair to you, it really could. Yeah, they are looking good. They are looking that, impressive. That was that was a bad take. Um, you know what? I think I'm I'm fairly sure, although I don't I don't fully remember this, but I'm fairly sure that I tipped uh, Villa and Everton to both do better than United Arsenal Spurs. So you know that as far as bad takes go, I'm full of them. I was convinced that Arsenal were going to really struggle and that Arteta would have gone by now and all the rest of it. So yeah, I've been I've been proven wrong with the Gunners. Um, oh yeah, I should also say, by the way, that I did absolutely fill it Arteta after four games of the season. I said he was way out of his depth. Yeah, I said that he wasn't a Premier League coach. That oh man, I said loads of bad things about Arteta, and he's making me look a chump too. Well, I'm still on the fence with him. I mean, as regards to the, t- the team he's got there and have a doing, fair enough. I'll put my hands up. But as regards to his credentials as as a head coach. I'm still a bit on the fence. I mean, it's just a, one of those teams, isn't it? They could go on to win eight of the next 10 games or lose eight of the next 10 games and be in crisis again. You just mm. never know with them. Um, Apparently, they're outperforming their XG oh, really? some distance, which generally tends to mean that there's going to be a dip <laughs> yes. around the corner. I'm just hoping that, because I think their first game back after the break is Liverpool. Uh, so I'm hoping that the dip doesn't come there. <laughs> if they could uh, if they could take a couple of points off Liverpool, at least that'd be nice. Yeah. Uh, next question is, has got nothing to do with kind of a season so far, but I've just chucked it in anyway. It's from Graham Roberts uh, on Twitter. Um, Chris, I'll go with you first. Sexiest and least sexiest player in the squad? <laughs> Fucking hell. Uh, well, uh, so I think Jesus, uh, right? So I, yeah, I've, I've got a record of stating that Kinsella looks like a Rocky Three. Yes, Stallone. So, yes. so I, I, I think he's very dashing. I mean, when he had that, when he had that fucking, melted, when he had that melted Parmesan cheese look on the top of his fucking head, I kind of I moved away from that one. But I, th- I think he's very striking looking, least sexiest. Um, uh, I, I think it's Edison. He looks like he looks like a Chicago thug. So he's just like a, you know, and and that and that fucking that um, smiley face tattoo is the most, yes. the, most yeah. unadvisable thing I've ever seen. So uh, Eddie, Eddie is a lovely guy, but I, I wouldn't necessarily want him on a first date. So it's. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad I asked this question. Yeah. Sexiest and least sexiest. Yeah, I mean, you know, like. 
you know how much I love him as a footballer, but I can I can I can fairly comfortably say that like you know Philip Phone ain't a looker. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like you know, that's bad bad scenes. And then, <laughs> you know, like the the handsomest. Not not saying the. I'm not saying there's that. a few. There's a good few. Yeah, there's a, there's a there's a few, man. But I think I'm gonna have to go with Big Ruben. Yeah, being being oh, being yeah. really straight with you, I think. I think there's a there's a video that did the rounds of him in one international break where he's training at his villa in the Algarve, and uh, it was just a bit like, all right, well, there's some life goals if you want to get fit, lad. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. Actually, actually you know what? If if you put if 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 you put together Cancelo, Rodri, and Diaz, you've got quite a striking boy band there, haven't you? And well, a nice little trio there. <laughs> Rod, Rodri's, I would actually say, is the least sexiest. That you get to my vote for least sexiest. Nothing. He's, no. a, he's a perfectly good-looking chap, but he just looks like he's twenty-five years older than what he is, and yeah. it, it kind of throws me off my guard. But he looks like an uncle. You know, he really does look like an uncle. I mean, how old is he? Twenty, <laughs> twenty-five, something. But yeah. he looks forty-five. So that's. Let me ask me. you both a question, right? Just throwing it out of left field. If you could be one player in the squad, oh, who easy. would you be? Easy. Kevin De Bruyne. To, to play like Kevin De Bruyne for 90 minutes would be... That's, that's, that's your life goal right there. To to, right. To, to to pass like he can pass for 90 minutes would be like, that's it, I'm happy now. I'll go back to normal life forever. That's that's good. All right. Chris? Uh God, before I before I stopped playing football, I used to play uh, central defensive central midfield, and I always used to love it where I did I would dispossess a player, move the ball forward, and then play it onto a colleague who could do something better than I could do. So I <laughs> guess probably I'm being very pragmatic, but probably Rodri, and that's I think that's symptomatic of how impressed I've been with him. Yeah. This is, he's so I like to be quietly consistent in everything that I do and that's why Rodri is uh, at the moment there's no fireworks with him it's just reliability what about you Sam? well I don't like pressure right so <laughs> I'd probably be Zach Steffen because that's probably a sick gig man not, not Scott you know? Carson Scott, Scott Carson, Carson. <laughs> no, no 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 because I want to play like I, I don't like pressure but I do want to play you know I mean? so like Give me the give me the Carling Cup games. Give me the you know the the dead rubbers in the league. Once we're in deep in the Champions League, let me feel the let me let me have a medal. Let me have the trophies. Let me have all the shine without any of the pressure. I'd say if I could be any player, as in twenty four hours a day, kind of just if I could just be that person, Fernandinho for me, just so cool. I mean, so cool the way the manner in which he's come over to another country and not only just become you know kind of uh, an Englander, he's become Mancunian and he's mm. got a lovely family. He can he's clearly got a lovely family who, who dote on him. Um, a fantastic footballer, well respected, gets about the pitch. I, I, I love the guy. So if I could be anyone, it'd be Ferner, I think. But go back to the original question. The sexiest mofo in the squad is undoubtedly Jack Grealish. Uh, he has semi-turned to me. So not, yeah. not having it. Not having it. No, same. I'm not having it. I'm sorry, it's, 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 it's ropey just, hair, but it, it, no, it's not just the hair. But it, it's it's right. He's not an ugly kid. Okay, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to be very subjective. <laughs> but, but, and I can't quite believe we've gone down this particular rabbit hole. But, but, but we, 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 we will continue and resurface. Jack Grealish's popularity with with um, with both ladies and gentlemen across across England across the football fraternity, I think, is an echo of Beckham. And I always thought Beckham was hugely overrated in terms of classic 
and it, which is often Mediterranean looks. You're not getting past somebody like Diaz or something like Cancelo. Or it's just, I mean, Cancelo, pretty boy. Sorry, Greenish, pretty boy. But I'm sorry, he is a pretty others, boy. The, the others. I'm a sucker for a pretty boy. What can I say? I don't know. <laughs> you know what? This was only meant to be a quick question. I now wish yeah. we did the whole pod on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's open it up to Ken in the Premier League in general. Um, Chris, from what you've seen so far, I mean, everyone was tipping at the start of the season it was going to be City, Chelsea, Liverpool, three-way tie, certainly after the first couple of weeks. Have you seen any evidence to suggest that's not going to be the case? Um, possibly. So... I've seen no evidence that City won't be there at the end of the season challenging for it, if not already won. Um, Liverpool are, de- are defensively more suspect than they than they were when they won the title. I think so. And, they are, and they're going to lose Salah and uh, Mane um, at the beginning of next year. And Egypt normally do really quite well, so they might be away for, for a while. So I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced that they will be able to maintain that challenge. Now, Chelsea despite starting well, have not been pulling up trees. However, they have still been taking points when they've been playing poorly or, mm. or, 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 or delivering an average performance. And that, unfortunately, is the sign of somebody who does have longevity. So I'm more, I'm more inclined to suggest by the time we get to late March, early April, it might be a conversation between City and Chelsea um, for the title. Liverpool may be still rapping on the door trying to get in there, but I, 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 that's what I've seen so far, that Chelsea are not fantastic, but they're not losing games. Yeah, I, I completely I think, agree. Go on. Sorry, Jason. Um, so Chelsea are uh, outperforming their expected points in the league this season. Um and you can spin that one of two ways. You can spin that in that they're not playing well, but they're still getting results, which is the sign of champions. Or you can spin it the other way, which is that that is going to eventually come back and bite them on the arse. For me, City and Liverpool are the two best teams in the league. I don't think that Chelsea are at the level of, of City or Liverpool. I completely agree that Liverpool um, have got an issue at the back looks like a serious issue and it's not actually like people and I did the same like you kind of characterize it as a defensive issue but like often time is the case with these things no it's actually weirdly enough as a midfield issue it's a system issue the fact is that Klopp's trying to be more like City he's trying to he's, he's trying to get Liverpool to play more like City the the defensive line is ridiculously high uh, Alexander Arnold is almost playing as an attacking midfielder um but they don't have the quality or the the level of coaching to smother a game and control the football in the way that we do. So what we do is we don't give you the ball. So there are no turnovers. Yeah, we have two turnovers a game or something like that. When I've watched Liverpool this season, they don't have that quality on the ball. So what happens is all their mugs are giving the ball away. And when they give the ball away, they're getting turned around immediately. I mean, Brentford absolutely turned them around Mm. over and over again. Brighton turned them around over and over and over again. I think that West Ham turned them around over and over and over again. And so I think that in terms of looking at Chelsea and Liverpool as, well, who would I back or who would I bet on to be closer than City? I actually still bet on Liverpool to be closer than City because I think at the end of the day, 
Liverpool will take games away from lots and lots and lots of teams. And I don't think Chelsea will do that. And I think Chelsea sure. themselves are a little bit susceptible uh, to conceding goals. They're nowhere near as solid as they looked last season. I agree with your last point, absolutely. And I'd say it goes for Liverpool too. Uh, and I think you've explained it well, but Liverpool's kind of weakness. I, I kind of... My overall take on this season is it's going to be a role reversal of 2013-14 where basically Liverpool and Chelsea swap roles. So it'll be City and Chelsea going right to the death and then mm. Liverpool will still be in there but no one really thinks they're going to win the league. You know, when you're looking at the last two months to go. Uh, that's how I see it going. I, I really do rate Chelsea uh, under Tuchel and I really do think they're going to last the distance but I hope I'm wrong on that. So... Anyway, let's end with a team that we haven't really discussed today. Um, let's just laugh at United. Um, <laughs> I was thinking the other day what I would do if I was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, or rather if I was his successor. If I came in at United, what would the, what would my priorities be to turn that club around? And what struck me is a problem would arise, and then that would kind of impact upon another problem and another problem. And in the end, it's like, I... Do not envy anyone going into that job after Solskjaer, nor do I envy Solskjaer. They're in big trouble. Um, who wants to start on this? I mean, just let's have, just have a free-for-all, really. Um, I'll start with by saying they're absolutely fucked. Mm. I would say that, uh, I've said this on a previous pod, that there there is complacency in that club, which is born from a sense of entitlement yeah. based on previous experience. And that has given birth to this sentimental uh, fan- uh, sort of fantasy idea about Solskjaer having United DNA and therefore the absence of any system or any intrinsic um, thorough coaching principles is accepted. And I also think the key one is as, as well is that as, as, a, as a statement, as an attempt to gaslight the, if the fan base, they brought back Ronaldo to 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 kind of distract from the clear fundamental problems that are taking place, and and the key bit of development that Solskjaer was achieving over the last two two seasons was that he was developing the young players quite well, and when they brought Sancho, you thought that they're going to continue to do that as well. Excuse me. The purchase of Ronaldo has stagnated any development yeah. of those young players, and, and and the best way to look at that is when we talk about Marcus Rashford now. Do we talk more about his off-field achievements than his on-field achievements? And that, for me, is the sort of that that is the lens to, with with which to look through this. Is that United have become an illusion of a club who were challenging and they're so far away from that. And somebody like Solskjaer, unfortunately, is not the person to be able, through force of character, be able to push through the changes that's required that job because that is a massive turnaround which they've, which they've got to work towards. Can you see them turning it around anytime soon, Asa? Um, No, but, you know, I agree with everything that you said, everything that Chris said. I think that their problems are really, really, really deep-rooted. I think we all, um, as football supporters, we're a little bit conditioned by uh, the transfer window. We tend to um, anoint champions based on um, transfer window performances. And I think that one of the things when you take a step back from United and you look past the big glossy names of, Sancho, Varane and Ronaldo is that United don't really buy uh, the right mentality of player. I, I mean that with the best will in the world. They they don't buy the right mentality of player. Jaden Sancho is 
notorious for having mentality issues. I think Varane was an injury-prone guy who won everything at uh, at Real Madrid, and he took the money in moving to United because you, having done, achieved what he'd achieved at Real Madrid, for him to choose for his next destination to be a Manchester United football club, which is basically in the toilet. Um, it speaks to the wrong mentality for me. The, the manner in which they sign Cristiano Ronaldo and the manner in which he agrees to go there, again, financially motivated. This type of stuff is just not conducive to a healthy, successful football club. The, the competition in the Premier League is ridiculous and it's insane and the levels of professionalism that you're coming up against if you want to win the title well those levels of professionalism are Tuchel, Klopp and Guardiola and if you know anything about the way that those men manage their dressing rooms then you know that if you want to you want to fight with that the mentality first and foremost before quality before technical ability before anything the mentality needs to be right and they ain't got it so yeah they they got a long way to go they do I, I was talking to um, a couple of United fans recently we were in the pub and there was this I can't remember what it was it was a Cantona a program about Cantona came on uh, and then in the break they were talking about uh, a George Best documentary that had just been made and I said, fucking hell, you've turned into Nostalgia FC. You, you've basically, like, whereas Liverpool used to be that, now you are just Nostalgia FC. You're just looking back all the time. And they thought I was, like, you know, taking a piss. I really wasn't. I was actually saying it as, no, this is dangerous road for you to go down now if you're just going to keep harking back to those 20 years. And, and I feel that's what kind of, that's a mentality that runs throughout the club. And then when you've got Solskjaer in charge as well, just to exacerbate that. If you look at the purchase yeah. of Jordan Sancho, he exemplifies that the best. So 15, 20 years ago, Jordan Sancho would be the perfect purchase for United because this myth that's been perpetrated by them about um, he is a Manchester United kind of player, right? What mm. does that mean? Right now, the Manchester United kind of player is Cristiano Ronaldo, okay? Is that past his best, living on former glories mm. and will hopefully, if you're lucky, produce these moments of individual brilliance which will steal the game for you. That's who United are at the moment, which is why they are failing so comprehensively to integrate somebody like Sancho, to integrate somebody like Van der Beek in there. Because this notion of who we are, what a Manchester United player represents what their qualities are is become completely distorted by by the fact they're ignoring what what, what the truth is is that they're going through an an, an 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 era change which every club goes through where you can't rely on your former glories you have to focus on the next on the next next stage and they are everything they talk about is based on this united dna which unfortunately does not have a pulse at the minute they've got to get a new one <laughs> Yeah, bang on, bang on. Hey, is there anything you want to add before we wrap things up? Uh, no. Are we Are we going to have a little word on Newcastle? Or do we well, of course we can. Yeah, we've got five minutes on Newcastle. Um, mm. For me, the fascinating aspect of Newcastle is, you know, where they are right now on a pitch compared to where they could be off a pitch very soon. Um, I've never known this. I mean, even, you know, City doesn't compare to this, does it? I mean, we had some pretty decent players, around the takeover. Um, we're in fairly good shape, you know. Compared to Newcastle right now, I mean, they're dog shit. So it's fascinating. No players want to go there. No one's going to want to go there in January. Um, 
So yeah, what, what what's your I'm take on that? I'm not convinced by that. I'm not convinced by that. I, I think that you know, um, I think one of the mistakes that the media have made. Um, uh, we forget, firstly, right, right, we forget that football is not really rational. Yeah, there's a lot of emotion involved in football at every single level, mm. including in boardrooms, including with agents, including with players. And I think one of the, the kind of mistakes that the media have made is by, by anointing Newcastle as the richest club in the world, by talking about how everybody's trying to stop them by talking about them as if it's a foregone conclusion that if they are not controlled, they are the next Man City. They've done the marketing and the advertising job that the club needed them to do in terms of buying new players. Because if you are a ambitious player, then you will look at a club like Newcastle and go, well, why wouldn't I go there? I take, I mean, the, 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 where they are in the league and the relegation thing is a separate conversation that we can have. But just in terms of how attractive are Newcastle, honestly, they weren't that attractive when the takeover was first mooted and they, they, they weren't that attractive even when the takeover happened. But you fast forward to four weeks or six weeks and you look at the noise that's been generated, that noise is going to condition minds and the league have messed up basically because they think that like by making it such a big deal that you're somehow going to control what happens there. I don't think you're going to be able to control what happens there, but what you are doing is you're telling all the players out there and all the agents out there, that's the gaff to go to because they've got loads of money and they're going to build in the next three years, four years, five years. When you're talking about Liverpool, Man United, Spurs being petrified of Newcastle, that implies that Newcastle can usurp them. So for me, if you're doing, if you're saying that publicly, players are going to be talking about that. So that's the, on the one side, you've got that. On the other side, I like Eddie Howe and I'm fascinated by how this unfolds because we often have this thing that we look at certain coaches, whether it's Howe or it's Potter or it's Harsen Hootel, and you kind of go, oh man, give a coach like that resources. Yeah. Mm, They're going to yeah. do really, really well. And I think that now, we get to see that in real time because Eddie Howe will have money to spend in January. And regardless of what the papers say about nobody wants to sell at Newcastle, well, you know what? The British market is overpriced. And if they dip into Europe, they'll find much better value and find much better players, which they'll probably end up doing. So I'm fascinated by how it's going to go for Eddie Howe. I think he will keep them up. I don't think that they'll be relegated. Um, and then beyond that, it will be interesting to see next summer what types of players they can attract if they do stay up. But I do think that I think Newcastle are right to be massively optimistic about what's going to happen. And I think everybody else in making the noise they've made has kind of, you know, done a little bit of a marketing job for Newcastle as a club because they they don't need to say anything. When they go and talk to agents and players, they just go, well, look at what the papers are saying. <laughs> you know, we've got more money than everybody else and everybody's petrified because we're here to do something serious. So, you know, I'd be interested to know what you two think because that's kind of my take on it. 
I must admit, I've been slightly annoyed when I've been seeing people take the piss out of Eddie Howe this week, saying, oh, yeah, Newcastle going to sign this kind of player now from Liverpool or you know, Liverpool Reserve and all the rest of it. Yeah, that's the kind of players he had to sign at Bournemouth. That's when he was on a shoestring. You know, it's going to be completely different now. Um, Spot on. I, I'm really interested to see how it works out there with Howe. Uh, and the relegation battle itself, uh, if, I, I find it fascinating. I mean, we shouldn't forget, they're winless right now. They have not won a game. Um, they are in dire trouble, and yet they are the wealthiest club on the planet, according to many. So, Chris, where do you fall on this? I think it will come down to how coherent what they do is. Because I take Aysan's point that at the minute, Newcastle's stock is quite high in terms of interest from players and, and agents. I would question what kind of players might be interested in that at the moment. If you go back and look at our journey with Shinawatra, it created the illusion of a new club starting afresh. But there wasn't a lot of coherence in the purchases that Ericsson made. He just got a lot of decent plays. We just got a lot of them. And then the incoherence steeped in the second half. And it, and, and when the new owners came in, it wasn't really until Mancini came in, did, did, the, did the transfers start to have a coherence about them. And the players we were bringing from... You know, particularly from other English clubs. Yes, they were coming because they get paid more. But players like Milner and Barry knew they had to move at that point to be able to win something. Otherwise, they were never going to win anything. And some of the players, you know, like David Silva, you know, you had to know quite a lot about La Liga to really know about him. Aguero, the same thing. You had to know quite a lot about La Liga or watch or watch the you know the uh, Europa or what it was before then to really know something um, about him. I think it, it depends how coherent their approach is. And it also depends on, on what they want Eddie Howe to achieve. Because I think I think his, obviously his priority is to avoid relegation. I agree with Aiton. I think they will avoid relegation. I, th- I think there are worse, three more worse teams than them. And and Newcastle just need a little bit of a, little bit of a run. But that coherent transfer strategy and management of the club is the key thing. Our club is an anomaly. If you look across the rest of Europe and the way yeah. the way rich owners run clubs, yeah. we are a freak because our owners don't need money back. It's part of their portfolio. That's why we're so well run because there isn't that kind of um, profit line for them uh, at stake. So I'm more inclined to say, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to kind of denigrate their ambition. But I'm going to kind of withhold judgment to wait to see how coherent their first two or three years of that ownership are. I think that one of the things that, for me, a little bit signposts the fact that they're going to try to do this right is the fact that they are going to bring a a sporting director and a technical director. Mm. And it's not just the, it's not just the fact that they're going to bring a sporting director in. It's the names that have been linked. If you look at the names that are being linked seriously, Jason Wilcox from our place, Brian Marwood from our place, um, uh, Michael Emilano, who did an incredible job at Chelsea. Those are all play, th- those are all people within football who bring brains, who bring knowledge, who bring, you know, experience on that side of a football club. I think that, you know, I'd be a little bit more worried if it was like, oh, we want Alan Shearer as our technical director. Yes, yeah, or yeah. We want yeah. Kevin Keegan as our technical director. That would concern me because that would speak to not a coherent strategy, more of a marketing strategy. Yeah. Whereas the names being linked from a footballing point of view, they feel coherent. And even, you know, I've seen a few heavy links, for example, 
Kieran Trippier, right? Kieran Trippier is exactly the type of signing for Newcastle that speaks to coherent football strategy, yeah? Because Trippier's not flashy, and he's not, you know, you're not trying to run before you can walk. Trippier just comes in and enormously, enormously improves their squad, and he brings the right mentality. And again, this will be something that will be so important for Newcastle that you bring talent, but you also bring players with the right mentality. And that, I don't know, I just, I'm, I'm a little bit conditioned by the negativity that surrounded their takeover. And I'm a little bit conditioned by the kind of unfair way in which a little bit like City supporters, their supporters are just being ridiculed and lambasted by Oxbridge knobheads who work in the media, <laughs> right? And I, and I think that because of that, I have the, I want them to do well. And I hope they do. And in terms of the, the first part, the first part was getting, who do you get after, after Bruce? What does that appointment look like? And I think Eddie Howe is the right appointment. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic for them, if that makes sense. Lads, I have really enjoyed today. Um, I Me found too. it really interesting. And um, yeah, thank you very much for coming on, Asa. Absolute pleasure, mate. Thanks, Chris. Welcome. It's been a pleasure. I do think with, I do think there's a new pod possibility with um, <laughs> a sexist ratings for the squad. Yeah, absolutely. Past, past, past and present. <laughs> yeah, that's for next Wednesday. Like Already yeah, got like it down, it. yeah. Um, that's, and thanks, everyone, for listening in. It's always appreciated, of course, it is. And, and that's a wrap for today. We're off to check if the Republic of Ireland have ever played a fixture that didn't end nil-nil. In the meantime, take care of yourselves, be well, and forever up the magnificent blues. <laughs>